Let the words of my mouth and in the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Well, good morning, friends. Long, long ago, in a galaxy far, far away, I used to have to go to Hong Kong on business. And it's a hot and humid place sitting right there on the equator. Maybe we can relate to hot and humid. But there was one thing there which just was eye-popping, and that was this. In the construction of large skyscrapers, as the building rose higher and higher, there also arose bamboo scaffolding, bamboo around the building as it rose up 50 stories, 60 stories high. Now, I've never seen anything like that. And I said, what's up with that? And I was told this was a very common construction technique in Asia. Apparently, bamboo is incredibly strong, but a little flexing in high winds. So it's, you're looking at it, you're thinking, this is rickety and dangerous and horrible, but in fact, it works very well for them. Now, just as having a strong scaffolding is important in the construction of skyscrapers, so here in our passage, we find that James has a scaffolding which holds up and gives power to his message. What is it? Eschatology, eschatology, the doctrine of what is going to happen when Jesus comes. So the first thing I'm going to do this morning is look at how James uses the language of eschatology. Then second, I will look of what James has to say about the unrighteous use of wealth in verses 1 to 6. And then finally, I will look at what all this means to the suffering Christian believer in verses 7 to 11. So first, eschatology. And let's get clear about what the word means. I mean, it's kind of one of those big 25-cent words and no, we probably haven't used it in a sentence in the last week. So here's one definition. Eschatology is the study of the last things to happen on this earth in this present age. It includes such topics as Jesus' second coming, the judgment of the world, the resurrection of the dead, and the creation of the new heaven and earth. Death, judgment, the final destiny of us all, heaven, hell. What does James have to say about these things? In verse 1, he refers to the miseries that are coming upon the unrighteous rich. Judgment is coming. In verse 3, he refers to their flesh being eaten by fire. 
judgment. Again in verse 3, he says, they have laid up treasure for the last days. This does not sound like a good thing to me. In verse 5, he refers to the day of slaughter, judgment. In verse 7, he refers to the coming of the Lord. And he repeats that phrase in verse 8. The coming of the Lord is at hand. In verse 9, the judge is standing at the doors. And in verse 11, he refers to the purpose of the Lord. What the Lord is going to accomplish for his people, not only now, but at the end of time. So in our text this morning, there are consistent references to what is going to happen in the end times. There will be judgment, there will be a day of slaughter, the Lord is coming, the judge is standing at the door. The purposes of the Lord will certainly be fulfilled. Now, as we've worked our way during the old sabbatical, before Eric has come to us, as we've worked our way through James, we've seen over and over how practical it is. This, of course, is why he makes a squirm, as Charles aptly phrased it last week. He is blunt, and he is plain about how we are to live, and we are caught in a searing laser beam. But just because he's practical, that does not mean there is no scaffolding. Quite the contrary. His statements and his judgments are so searing just because behind him lies the reality of the end. This life is not all there is. There is death and judgment and heaven and hell. Now, recognizing this can go two ways. First, you can be terrified. That is, or should be, the case for the people who are described in verses 1 to 6. But second, you can realize that God has blessed you. That is the case for those who trust in Jesus, who are steadfast, who persevere. Those are the people described in verses 7 to 11. So let's look at these two groups. And first, the unrighteous wealthy, verses 1 to 6. Listen up, you rich. Pay attention. Because what is coming to you is not straight. Not straight at all. Are you squirming yet? Well, let's begin by asking who James is talking about. Who are these people? Opinions are divided. Some commentators think these people have to be Christians in the fellowship. They hold this view 
on the ground that the letter as a whole is addressed to believers and that the immediately preceding passage, which Charles preached on last week, also addresses the problem of the misuse of, misuse of wealth within the Christian community. However, the majority of commentators from Calvin onwards say that these verses, pre the language in these verses preclude these people being Christians in any sense whatsoever. Their behavior is utterly outrageous and immoral. And the judgment which is coming upon them means they cannot be followers of Jesus. Well, to decide, let's take a look at the passage. And in verses 1 to 3, James describes what is happening to them. Well, miseries are coming on. That's clear. But not only future, already they're experiencing the passing away of everything in which they are putting their trust. They had trusted in gold and silver and having rich and fine clothes. But they're disappearing. Now, there's some out there among you, I'm looking for Wendy Yohe, who will know that, in fact, gold and silver do not rust or corrode. So why does James say they're going to rush to corrode? Maybe he just made a mistake. No, the rust and corrosion of their gold and silver is part of the judgment that is coming upon them. Aha, we have gold and silver and nothing can touch that kind of wealth. Wrong. God is in control not you. When God brings judgment, your so-called wealth, that which makes you so proud, it corrodes, it dissolves into nothingness before you. Your riches seem so secure, so good. It's like the parable of the rich fool. The rich fool says to himself, so you have ample goods laid up for many years. Take your ease. Eat, drink, be merry. I'm all set. No, you're not. Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Does the rich person really think he can escape from what is coming to his wealth? No, no. Already he sees that which he trusted corroding, being eaten away by moths. And what is more, these corroded riches are treasure in the last days. Does James use treasure in a good way? No. They're evidence against him. They eat his flesh. The treasure he has laid up for himself, the treasure itself condemns him to God's wrath. Verses 4 to 
So that's who. In verses 4 to 6, James tells us why these wealthy people are being condemned so severely. First, they have fraudulently stolen the wages of the people who work for them. Next, they have lived lives of pleasure, fattening their hearts in the day of slaughter. Finally, they have condemned through the misuse and abuse of the justice system and have even murdered the righteous innocent who stand in their way. How do they murder? Well, here's a quotation from chapter 30, 34 of the apocryphal book of Sirach, also called Ecclesiasticus. And this is a helpful quotation. Ecclesiasticus is not the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is the one we see in our Bible. Ecclesiasticus, or Sirach, appears if you have a Bible with an apocrypha in it. Anyway, here's what the author of Sirach says in chapter 34. Bread is, bread is life to the destitute, and to deprive them of it is murder. To rob your neighbor of his livelihood is to kill him. And he who defrauds a worker of his wages sheds blood. Do these abuses sound as if they only happened long ago? Surely, we are more enlightened now. We live in the age of enlightened capitalism. In our pursuit of wealth, we would never do any of these things. News note, that was sarcasm. Of course we can, and of course we do. People are underpaid for the hours they work. Contracts are broken. Yeah, I know I'd said you, I'd pay you 600000 but I'm only going to pay you 400000 So sue me. I'm a big hotshot with a team of lawyers, and you're a small-time contractor. Good luck with that. So the question is, are such people going to get away with it? James answers, no. No, they're not. The wages which they've stolen cry out to God. And the cries of the poor have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. I should not, off text, I should not help be struck this morning how in both Dana's opening prayer and in Wes's pastoral prayer, there was a repeated reference to the many wonderful names of our Lord. Well, here's another one of them, the Lord of hosts, another one of the wonderful names. What are hosts, you say? This is church talk. Lord of hosts, yeah, I hadn't really thought about it. What are hosts? Vast, overwhelming armies. During the ministry of the prophet Elisha, 
The king of Aram brought a large army and attacked Dothan, a city of Israel. Elisha's servant went out one morning and saw the king of Aram's huge army surrounding the city. And he said to Elijah, Alas, master, what are we to do? Here's what Elijah said. Do not be afraid, for there are more with us than there are with them. And then the servant's eyes were opened, and he saw that the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Do not be afraid. There are more with us than with him. Chariots of fire. No puny human army can come against the hosts, the armies of Yahweh. Or take a New Testament example. In the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus was being arrested, Peter, my name said, what a rash act. He took a sword and cut off the ear of a servant to the high priest. Jesus rebuked him. Jesus rebuked him and said, do you think I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? So when James says that the cries of the laborers have reached the Lord of hosts, what he means is that Yahweh has ultimate power and authority. No one can resist him. And as Charles pointed out so vividly last week, our God hears the cries of the humble who are oppressed, but he is against the proud. For surely these rich are very proud they live in luxury and pleasure and fatten their hearts. He just bought a BMW, so I didn't get me one of those Mercedes Benzes. But this fattening is for the day of slaughter when the Lord comes to judge with heaven's armies. Our first scripture meeting this morning was from Jeremiah chapter 12. Jeremiah pleads with the Lord about the fact that the wicked prosper. No difference today. The wicked prosper today. They love talking about God, but God is very far from their hearts. They secretly say to themselves, God will not see our lesser ends. I won't be judged for any of this evil I'm doing. Wrong, for they will be pulled out like sheep for the slaughter and set apart for the day of slaughter. They will be facing the true judge, the one who cannot be bought or manipulated. I guess we sometimes think that only Joe Stalin or Adolf Hitler or such like really, really, really big sinners will be judged on the day when the Lord returns. 
But in fact, everyone is going to be judged. Everyone, all of us, both the righteous and the wicked. The oppressed believers who have been unable to resist because they are weak and lonely, they will be judged. And they will be counted righteous, not for their own deeds, but because they belong to Jesus, whose righteousness is substituted for my unrighteousness. But the unrighteous, the wicked, what awaits them? The day of slaughter. So I return to the question I asked earlier. Who are these rich people? Christian believers who need a severe warning? Or people who trust in their own wealth and power, practice injustice, and don't give a rip for God and his ways? Well, I have to agree with Calvin. I think they're the latter. And you're all smiling because now I don't have to court squirm. This isn't me. It's not about me. Really? Do you get to be comfortable and complacent while listening to these words? Are you rich? I'm not rich. I mean, don't the rich have fancy houses in Palm Beach and powerful friends? I've never even been to Palm Beach, and I sure don't have any powerful friends. Well, think about most of the people on this planet. Do you have a place to live? Do you have a closet with extra clothes in it? Did you not only have oatmeal for breakfast, but there's still some left in the box so you can have oatmeal tomorrow morning for breakfast? Do you have a TV? Oh, you have two TVs and an iPhone and two iPads. You have a car. You have a bank account. You maybe even have a 401k. Are you rich? You darn tootin' you're rich. <laughs> So we're back to squirming with James. He is forcing us to ask ourselves some very hard questions. In what do you put your trust? Are you building larger barns? Remember what James said in chapter four. Friendship with the world is enmity with God? Or do you trust in Jesus Christ, the one whose righteousness will be counted as ours? There are only two choices. Which do you choose? Well, let's go on to verses 7 to 11. You know, despite the woe which is so unmistakably coming upon those who oppress us, it's still hard to be on the receiving end of injustice and in this sad world of woe. But in these verses, James goes on to encourage us while we wait in hope for the return of Jesus. 
He begins with, therefore, because we know all this stuff. We know the dreadful judgment coming upon the wicked righteous. Therefore, we are encouraged to persevere. George grew up on a farm, and I knew and really, really liked, I should say I loved her father, who was obviously a farmer. Every morning, without fail, winter or summer, the first thing he would do was turn on the radio to KMCM to listen to the weather forecast. Farmers, newsflash, are dependent upon the weather. Now in Palestine, the early rain comes in the autumn, and the latter rain comes in the spring. And if either one doesn't, you know, a whole stick, if it's at the wrong time or the wrong amount, then the crop is not as good as it hoped you hoped for. And the farmer has to be patient. He has to wait for the rain that the Lord sends. So we believers must patiently wait for the Lord. Further, we should take encouragement from the fact that the Lord's coming is near. How near? Well, from the point of view of eternity, it's right now. There is no escaping it. As we have seen, for the wicked, this is cause for woe. Woe and lamentation. But to those who trust in Jesus, it's cause for rejoicing. Then in verse 9, James interjects as a warning about complaining and grumbling about one another, attacking your brother and sister within the church. What's that doing here? It's here because when we're under pressure, we tend to take it out on other people, on our spouse, on the kids, and most fun of all, on the other people in the church. I may be being harassed by the world, but at least I can complain about the job the elders are doing. As Charles pointed out last week, we already have heard James warn against believers judging fellow believers. This is a kind of judgment that says, I know what your ultimate end is, and because you messed up being an elder, it's not going to be good. No, James has already said, that's to, I mean, sorry, Charles already said, that's to assume the prerogative of God himself. Only God has the right and the power and the wisdom to make ultimate judgments. But there is good news in this warning not to grumble as well. Good news, the judge stands at the door. Why is this good news? Listen to this passage. I hope it's very familiar. This is about suffering believers. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne 
will be their shepherd. Wait, we, I didn't plan this, I didn't choose it, but we sang about the shepherd in one of our songs this morning. The lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and he will guide us to the springs of living water and wipe away every tear from our eyes. Life is hard. Look around you. Life is hard. But we have a certain hope, not a, it might happen, but a certainty. So we can remain patient and endure what is set before us. And finally, James refers us to another example of suffering and patience, the prophets themselves. You know, you go back and you look at them again. Unfortunately, all of them were hounded by those in power. Elijah by Ahab and Jezebel, Isaiah and Jeremiah by the wicked kings in power. You can go on. They were hounded by the unrighteous. And yet, James says, behold, wake up, pay attention. See what the Lord is showing you. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. So that's the outcome of our patience under suffering and oppression. This is where the Lord is taking us. This is his firm purpose. When we trust Jesus, when we remain firm in him, through thick and through thin, then God blesses us. How are we blessed? We are blessed because we find, once again, as if we hadn't learned this over and over again throughout our entire lives, we find the Lord is compassionate and merciful. That, that too, ought to ring a bell. Listen. The Lord of the Lord, our God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Who is this? This is our God's own self-proclamation of who he is. He gave it to Moses in Exodus 34 compassionate and merciful, merciful and gracious, forgiving. But 
who will by no means clear the guilty. Are you squirming? James forces us to look squarely. You can't get away with not looking at it. Squarely at the ultimate question. Whose side am I on? Am I on my own side? Looking out for number one? I don't care who I trample because my own power and pride and prestige are the only measure of right and wrong. Or am I on Jesus' side? Do I patiently follow him? Do I practice forgiveness? Do I practice mercy? Whose side are you on?